Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. Hello, I'm Charles Sims, and this is In Social Work. Bio, psycho, social. Every social work student learns this early in his or her social work education. The three-dimensional model is the framework used in clinical social work application to help social workers fully assess and appreciate the complexity of the client's experience. Through using this multi-dimensional view, the social work practitioner understands that the client's problem may have a number of factors that are interrelated, and to be successful, a service plan should likely be as comprehensive. Today, it is not uncommon to see an additional dimension added to the biopsychosocial model. Spirituality is an often controversial aspect of social work practice. Social work students and seasoned professionals are frequently unsure if, when, or how to introduce this topic area. In October of 2014, today's guest sat down for a discussion on the use of spirituality in clinical social work practice. Bonnie Collins is a retired licensed clinical social worker with more than 30 years of experience. Ms. Collins has an extensive professional background that includes agency-based clinical practice, private clinical practice, teaching at the undergraduate and graduate levels, and as a program director. She started her own agency where she specialized in working with adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. She has authored or co-authored several books and articles and trained and lectured extensively. Ms. Collins conducted seminars on integrating spirituality into psychotherapy and for many years taught a course on the use of spirituality in social work practice. Elaine Hammond is a licensed social worker with 35 years of professional practice. She has a private practice that specializes in working with very young children and their families and also with adults who experience traumatic events in early childhood. She currently teaches a course on integrating spirituality into social work practice at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. In this part one of a two-part conversation, Ms. Collins and Ms. Hammond describe the difference between spirituality and religion, how one might begin discussing the topic with clients, thoughts about assessment, concerns that social workers bring to this discussion, as well as what the social worker needs to do to prepare to explore this topic with their clients. And now, part one of Integrating Spirituality into Social Work Practice. So we're here today for you to have an opportunity to talk some about integrating spirituality in clinical intervention. Both of us have taught here at yeah, UB. The, it is kind of fun, <laughs> the spirituality and social work mm-hmm. course. We teach it from slightly different angles. Yes, which is interesting. Yeah. It is. Mm-hmm. But today we're really going to concentrate 
on those clinical kinds of interventions. Let's start from that very beginning with that question that everybody asks. What's the difference between spirituality and religion? Well, it's interesting. I had expected that, of course, you would ask that. And I have my own definition that sometimes changes, you know, depending on situation. But at one time, I was asked by the state of New York to do a spirituality seminar for the local mental health centers. And Mm -hmm. they sent the curriculum for me to do. And the state of New York defines spirituality this way. Listen. It is an internal process involving one's sacred connections to all of life and one's feeling of belonging in the universe, which may or may not include belief in God and may be expressed in diverse ways. What do you think? (laughs) It's a little wordy. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's entirely off base. Mm, I don't either. For myself, I'd be happier if it was more explicit in its inclusion of the things that we might think of as agnostic or atheistic. Well, it does say um, diverse ways. Yes. So, it's I, so that's a nod yeah, to those diverse ways. I have to wonder if a lot of people would still see that as diverse religious yes, ways. Yes, you're probably right. Well, and as compared to religion, New York State says, says, as compared to religion, which is the relationship or communication between a superhuman power and individuals involving the organized set of beliefs and practices of a particular faith community. The word that jars me is superhuman power. Mm -hmm. And whenever I taught this at UB, we would always discuss that because we thought it sounded like Superman or Mm -hmm. something, and it didn't feel right. So that's somewhat what the state of New York is saying. And of course, everybody, it's really hard to define spirituality because I think it has a personal component that we need to honor and right. reflect on. It's still in the DSM, which is interesting. It's a V code, but the title of that particular diagnosis in the new DSM is spiritual confusion. Confusion? <laughs> yes. Oh. I thought that was just fascinating. And it's it according to the DSM, this category can be used when the focus of clinical attention is a religious or spiritual problem. Examples include distressing experiences that involve loss or questioning of faith, problems associated with conversion to a new faith, or questioning of spiritual values that may not necessarily be related to an organized church or religious institution. I don't think that was too bad for the DSM. Of course, the people who are in practice of social work, they know that V-codes usually you don't get reimbursed by insurance companies. But I really believe it should always be part of the assessment process. Where are you spiritually? Do you have a spiritual dimension to your life? And can you share with me what it is or whatever? So as part of the assessment, those are the kind of questions I ask. Some of my favorite questions are things like, and I like open-ended rather than these kind of definitions, when in your life do you feel most alive? Oh, I like that one. Yeah, and think what you'll get from that. Mm -hmm. And also the opposite. When in your life do you feel... Not so alive. And it promotes a real, pretty deep discussion if you're working with a client who's able to talk about that, I think. The other thing you can do for assessment of spirituality is to ask your client to do an autobiography of himself or herself and where the spiritual high points may have been in their lives, where they might have had what I call holy moments. This all, of course, depends on the fact that you're not sitting with them, for instance, after 9-11, 
This is more the kind of questions you would ask in the quiet atmosphere of therapy. That's a little different. I mean, if you're sitting after 9-11 with someone who is sobbing their eyes out, it's not appropriate to say, where do you feel most alive? Mm-hmm. You know, Tell me what the tears are telling you. It'd be more likely. But sometimes it does evolve because people will say, where the hell was God mm-hmm. in this whole thing? Mm-hmm. So I'm always listening as a clinician. I'm always listening for any spiritual references in our assessment sessions, and then I plug in the question. I have not got one formal question, like some people have, do you go to church? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't have that. I feel my way with their discussion. I listen to their words, and whenever I can, I tap into it. So I'm not giving people a real easy assessment tool in that sense. Mm -hmm. But they can look at Kanda. He, he's spoken and written a lot on spirituality, and he started the Society of Spirituality and Social Work, which is a wonderful organization. And I'm just going to ramble off a few names in case people want to look them up. Bullis is another one. He wrote a book called Spirituality and Social Work Practice. Mm-hmm. And Jenkins wrote one called Nurturing Spirituality in Children. And that one has a lot of activities in it to help children, like with death and dying or illness or that kind of thing. Hopkins wrote a lot about working with groups, with spiritual themes. And Hodge, who is really quite prolific writer, developed a spiritual echo map, which is kind of like the genogram kind of thing. So if you do genograms as part of your assessment, you can include the spiritual dimension in genograms very comfortably. Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm saying is it seems like the clients and the students I've had are afraid to bring up this topic. It's like there's something wrong to do mm-hmm. it. They That's are. your experience, I, That too. is my experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine when you taught it, I, now yeah, as I'm thing. teaching it, yeah. we have significant conversation about yes. what is that fear about? Where yes. does it come from? Yes. They're, despite the professional imperative mm-hmm. to include assessments of spirituality, mm-hmm. and I refer to it as funding the courage to make the changes to <laughs> yeah. meet the challenge yeah. that they've come to us for. Yeah. Somehow we have to get some fuel. Yes. for that courage mm-hmm. and how someone makes meaning in life mm-hmm. has I think is mm-hmm. instrumental in that. Yeah, Students I, talk about their, their fear of stepping over a boundary mm-hmm. into evangelizing. Church and state. Yes. Thing. They, they talk about their fear of what do I say if someone tries to evangelize me. Maybe we could go to a little bit about how people make meaning in life is so individual. Sometimes we don't even have vocabulary for it. I agree, yeah. We move beyond what we think Mm -hmm. and what we feel into what we believe. Mm -hmm. And not having that vocabulary can make it tough to talk about. Students very often feel they don't have vocabulary for themselves. And if they do... They may hold it so closely. Yeah. How can I talk with somebody else? What if their way of making meaning is so different, different from mine? From your own, yeah. What if I think it's wrong? Uh, what if I think it's immoral? Judgment. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. all those judgment mm-hmm. kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I think that's very true. I had a student once when I taught here at UB who came in to me in the front of the room and said, I would love to take your course in spirituality, but I can't because I'm doing my field placement in a public school, and you can't mix church and state. But I had another student who stayed for the first class, which was about three hours long, and she came up to me after when she was about 22, I think, 
And she said, I'm going to drop out. I'm not old enough to take this class. Oh, my heavens. (laughs) I guess she thought she had to have some kind of wisdom. And I said, you may be much more full of wisdom than people Mm -hmm. are older. I don't know that. I have a grandson who at four gave me a lot more wisdom than any Mm -hmm. pastor or minister had given me for years. So I think that's always been an issue with the classroom. And the privacy thing, I hear what you say with clients. They talk about being afraid. I really stress very strongly that as a social worker, if you're going to integrate spirituality into your work, you've got to find out where you are in your own spirituality. And you've got to do that in a kind of a formal way so that it's really, you really are grounded in it. So one of my assignments in the class was to do an autobiography and reflect on it. And that was always interesting. Mm -hmm. And then another assignment that I always gave was find someone in a uh, spiritual way that you don't know anything about. Like we have people come in and do uh, women's spirituality and then Catholicism. But what about the Scientologists? Mm -hmm. And we looked at all these different uh, groups, and that was really interesting for everyone to have all that. Those assignments still exist in in slightly different permutations. (laughs) And so one of their fears, I think we talk about fears, is because they don't know where they stand was my observation. And once they feel more grounded in their own spirituality, whatever it may be, then we move on to the next thing, which is can you tolerate and accept someone who may be thinking the opposite of you? And this is where the famous social worker statement, honor diversity, that's Mm -hmm. what we're supposed to do. But for some of them, that was really a challenge. He doesn't believe in God. How can I sit here and work with him? He doesn't believe in God, and Mm -hmm. I do. Yeah. Well, and that's a challenge. And I hope that the spirituality course I taught would get them more comfortable with that. It's interesting how they have more trouble with that than they do with child sex abuse. It does seem so, <laughs> yes. It, it does feel weird in that it sense? It does seem yeah, so sometimes. Funny kind of thing. And, of course, trauma, I think, is the main place you use spirituality. And my phrase is, what was the gift in your trauma? And, of course, you got to time that. You don't, oh, absolutely. <laughs> you don't say that after one session or one time with them. Usually the gift is some sort of spiritual connectedness that they feel as a result of the trauma. Whether they've actually gone into a group that was talking about spirituality or they go to a church service or they just begin to contemplate that, yeah, I have this spirituality and I need to define it. And then you go in prepared you know, to work with somebody. That's mm-hmm. uh, hard for some of them. When we were preparing for this podcast today, mm-hmm. you were talking a little bit about how your interest in engaging spirituality with your clients grew out of your practice and became an imperative. Can you talk with us about that? Yeah, and one of the specialties I did early in my profession was work with adult survivors of childhood sex abuse. I didn't work with the children. That was somebody else's role. And in in my day when we started, a lot of the kids, nobody ever knew that there was child sex abuse until they became adults. And then I worked with the adults and the flashbacks and the hypervigilance and all of that. And then I would sit with a client who'd been through hell at a really early age. And she's sitting there at the age of 35 telling me all this awful abuse and neglect she experienced as a child. And I thought, how did she survive that and be sitting in front of me? And her comment would be, well, my faith. My faith helped me get through this. Or sometimes they would even say spirituality, although not as much as faith uh, or church kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I began to think, wow, I wonder if social workers know this. 
<laughs> do they use it? Do they realize that this is what helps yeah. people through? So then I started talking about the gift and the trauma. And as I said, the big thing I talk to the students about is don't do that in the first session. They're going to slap you silly because they don't see any gift in what just happened to right. them. But if you can bring it in later, talk about the idea that you're not alone. That's a really a spiritual concept, I think. And that there's a bigger world out there and not the little world you live in where the abuser was abusing you over and over. Not everybody's like that. Oh. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit tricky to do that. But I think it's a valuable course. It's a valuable awareness to take out there, especially now our society is a mess. So well, that's important. It certainly has challenges. On the personal side, just a little bit, I'm aware that you have come up in the Unitarian Church. Yes. <laughs> and from my point of view, that positions you uniquely to <laughs> appreciate mm-hmm. a broad diversity mm-hmm. of life-meaning expressions. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the things, that, and I was brought up in the Unitarian Church, which in my day was rare because most people are what we call come outers. <laughs> they come out of another religion yes. into Unitarianism. Yes, but right. I was raised to honor diversity. It was very much part of my childhood. In fact, my mother and father are both deceased, so I can say this. It was where the, they held the marriage together, was at the Unitarian Church. Otherwise, it was a horrible marriage, and they ended up divorcing later in life. But the church was what made us a family, and the church itself was honoring diversity all over the place. So that helped me be not so judgmental of different religions because in Sunday school, we one of the courses we took was called The Church Across the Street. And we would go to churches in the community and then yes. come back to our church and process it. So I've been processing since about the age of 12. <laughs> oh, my heavens. <laughs> yes, heavens, yeah, or hell, I'm not sure. Where. Yeah, so I, it just came naturally to me. And I think having been raised a Unitarian, social work came naturally to me, too, because we used to process everything, and we honored mm-hmm. diversity, and we did a lot mm-hmm. of charity kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a natural progression mm-hmm. to where I am now. <laughs> There's a real emphasis on context yes. in the Unitarian tradition. Yes. Mm-hmm. Where is, and what's situational your ethics. Now? Yes. You know, it, it's we we haven't got it defined so strictly. Well, it might work in this, but it's not going to work. You know, that's we are uh, spiritual confusion. Probably would be a good diagnosis for us, because nobody really stands up and crusades for their point of view. They'll share it and mm-hmm. we'll look at it. And as a kid, we were told that let's study all these different religions and spiritual things, and then make your decision about what fits for you. And we were always mm-hmm. told that it may change over time. Mm-hmm. And if you have had a trauma, your spiritual connectedness changes, sometimes Absolutely. for the worse. Absolutely. Know, they're mad at God or whatever. And that's something that I actually see missing in what you write on that current V code. Oh, yes. Is that, I mean, yes. you and I both know yes. that in therapy, maybe not in the crisis itself, but as therapy unfolds, mm-hmm. The relational break may be with the concept of the divine itself. Yeah. So yeah. you get folks who are now in a developmental stage where they're identifying as atheist, yes. where what they may actually be experiencing is anger at a deity that they believe in desperately and who has betrayed them. Mm-hmm. A lot of betrayal feelings Yeah. among survivors and in my field, survivors of childhood sex mm-hmm. abuse. Uh, that whole concept of where was God? Yeah, you know, I was a helpless child, and, mm-hmm. and where was God? Yeah, especially as a child. 
some of them are more angry at God than they are at the perpetrator. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I have found mm-hmm. that. What little work I have done mm-hmm. with folks who have had significant betrayal by clergy, mm-hmm. they're yeah. angry at clergy, oh, but seem be. to be, <laughs> but so much more of it seems to be with the concept of where was this greater God, whatever the deity is it's looked at mm-hmm. or named. We're not named. And that's open for discussion in my work with people. I will acknowledge to them, boy, I don't know that I would believe in God either if that happened to me. Where are you at now? Do you miss church or can mm-hmm. you think about going back? Or mm-hmm. what, what I've seen happen a lot is they create their own spirituality. And they have little groups that they get together, right. just like AA or right. anything like that. And when you get a group of women together who were abused as children, there's a spiritual connection. There seems so to be, soothing, does not know? seem to be avoidable even no. in any No, fashion. I think it just almost just happens. It grows up. You know? So the assessment probably is the trickiest part of using spirituality in a clinical practice because you have to get over the uncomfortableness of asking spiritual questions Mm -hmm. and you have to be grounded in your own spirituality whether it fits Mm -hmm. with theirs or not but my experience has been sometimes it's like opening the floodgates yes when you use any kind of word like spiritual or prayer or meditation it all comes out and people say to me clients say to me I didn't know I could talk about that here and I've had other people who are clinicians and say oh they start on that I refer them out to the local minister I said, how do you do that when they're in the middle of this and they're sharing with you something so intimate? You're giving them a message that it's not good to share it in therapy. You've got to go to the priest to share it. I always refer to the fact that I have a priest in my back pocket because sometimes when it's not working, I call him into sessions. (laughs) And he's a fun-loving guy, and he often doesn't wear his collar. So I said, please come fully dressed with your collar. (laughs) Please, no incognito priest. Yes, right. (laughs) And sit here, and I see the difference between what they'll say to him and what they'll say to me, but I'm always honored to be part of that process. Mm-hmm. And if that's where they want to go, that's fine with me. You know? Absolutely. So I that's think, assessment, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Part of my thing is that we impoverish the entire process mm-hmm. if we leave that off the table. I agree. Just, I agree. And why yeah. would we do that? I mean, the, the whole idea of spirituality is very social worky. It is. It's part of so many people's context. And however they express that. It might be about gardening. It might be about their relationship with the grandchildren Mm -hmm. and seeing into a time in the future where Mm -hmm. they're not there in the body but the grand... I mean, it could be... When do you feel most alive? That's the whole statement. One of my questions is, what do you find beautiful? Oh, that's a beautiful question. Yes. Yeah. Really, and actually, Mm -hmm. I find that you can even ask that very close to the crisis yes, situation. Yes, you could. What yes. still has beauty for you? That's good because um, it's not so threatening. Yes, and sometimes you get really concrete answers. Yeah. And in some situations, that's great. Yeah. Folks who are getting ready to make the sacrifice, perhaps of moving into a skilled nursing facility. Uh, yes. Now, what has beauty? Well, if it's the rug in the front hall, let's figure out a way to get the rug in the front <laughs> hall into it. But it might be the smiles of my grandchildren. It, mm-hmm. it might be the sun mm-hmm. coming up in the morning. Mm-hmm. It might be my garden. It gives you so many cues to how will you continue to fund their courage. Well, and I think one of the things I've always talked about with students, if they have an opportunity to go to a nursing home and just walk down the halls and see the memorabilia that's on their walls or on their door, Mm -hmm. that's their spiritual connection. Yeah, Yeah. special kinds of moments, holy Mm -hmm. moments in their lives. Absolutely. it's beautiful to think about, I think. You know, that's sacred stuff. It it's is. just sacred stuff. 
You have been listening to part one of a two-part conversation on integrating spirituality into social work practice. Please join us for the soon-to-be-released part two. I'm Charles Sims, your host at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.